Acts chapter 4, verse 32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that aught of the things which he had possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. Neither was there any among them that lacked, for as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that they were sold, and laid them down at the apostles' feet, and they were distributed among every man according to his need. And Joseph, who was an apostle surnamed Barnabas, which was being interpreted the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having sold land, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. When his wife's, with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has filled your heart so that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you did receive for the land? Didn't it belong to you when it was, before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and a great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for this land? She said, Yes, that is the price. And Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. At this moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. And by the hand of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And, the re- and of the rest did no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And the believers were more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, and that at the passing of the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, and them that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they healed every one. Please be seated. Good morning. Acts 4.32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. You know, if we flip backwards, Acts 1, verse 8, that you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Jesus says, and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very end of the earth. There's one mission, one purpose given to those who would follow after Jesus Christ. Acts 1, 14 says these all continued with one accord in prayer, in supplication. There was one voice lifted up before the Father as they gathered together in that upper room before the arrival of the Holy Spirit following the ascension of Christ. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They were of one mind. They were together. And then Acts 2, verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. There was one Spirit poured out upon them. In Acts 2, verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. There's one pursuit here going on, isn't there? By the church. Acts 2.43, fear came upon every soul. There was one heart toward the Lord, one desire. They feared not man, but the Lord here in this text. And 44 and 45 of Acts 2, all who believed were together, had all things in common, sold their possessions, goods, and divided them among all. As anyone had need, they were one in generosity, seeing that needs were met. 46 and 47, they continued daily with one accord in the temple. They were one in worship. They were one in hospitality, meeting together in the homes. If you flip to Acts chapter 4, 11 and 12, we see that they were one as represented by Peter here in his words to the Sanhedrin. One name, one way to be saved. And that's through Jesus Christ. Acts 4.24 So when they heard that, remember they had gathered together after the Sanhedrin had released them, let them go. When all the others heard what had happened, they raised their voice. To God with one accord. There was one voice in prayer. And at the conclusion of the text last week where we left off, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. There's this one bold witness through one spirit. The multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. About what? For what purpose? You see, the Holy Spirit filled believers were now marching to a different beat. New ownership. It's important to understand. We talked about this back in Acts 2 when the arrival of the Holy Spirit came. But it's important to put this forward, put this forward as reminders of where we have been what has come? You know, I was reminded of the song, All I Once Held Dear, Built My Life Upon. Right? All I Once Thought Gain, I've Counted Loss, Spent and Worthless Now Compared to This. Compared to what? Knowing you, Jesus. Knowing you, there is no greater thing. You're my all, you're my best. You're my joy, my righteousness. And I love you, Lord. Reminds me of Philippians 3, verse 7 and following. But what things were gained to me, writes Paul, as he's moved by the Spirit, these I have counted loss for Christ. Yet indeed I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that it may gain Christ and be found in Him, 
not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now the multitude of those who believed and were of one heart and one soul. You know, as I was thinking back of the, the context here of the church, we've already had a couple summary statements giving us some numbers of how the church has grown to this point. The church now is beyond some 5,000. And I got to thinking about 5,000 plus people who were one in heart and soul. a lot of people. How's that happen? What's the secret? Today the terminology is, what, what, what are the five steps to success? How did they get their church to do this? Maybe another question in light of the text today. We see this oneness among the multitude, among the church. But how does this oneness get destroyed in the church? We're going to see that here in the text today. It's interesting that such oneness can be found among a multitude. Maybe among a couple families... But thousands of people in Christ of one heart and one soul walking together for the cause of Christ, speaking words that glorify the name of Christ, their lives, you see, were no longer operating on their own schedules. But because of Jesus, because of the Holy Spirit in them now, their priorities for living all of a sudden changed. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 14 and 15 and verse 17 gives us some insight and some reason as to how this could happen. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he, here's fact, and he died for all. Why? Let's, let's listen to this. That those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now the text says here in Acts chapter 4, 32, that they had all things in common. They had all things in common. Well, the multitude who believed came to understand something about what it means to be a part of the family of God. No longer is it about me. No longer is it about fulfilling my desires. Being in Christ, being a part of Christ's church, there's a sense of connectedness there, isn't there? Sort of like when you got married. For so many years of your life, you thought about 
me. When you get married, that starts to change a little bit. At least, Lord willing, I hope so. And then when you start being blessed with children, if you have any children, that selfish meter just keeps on. <laughs> because you see, there are people who need you. They're dependent upon you. There's a sense of responsibility here, a sense of purpose, a sense that, that my life in the church is vitally connected to other brothers and sisters. It was a new day in the life of this new community. Belonging signified there was now work to be done. And that work would be carried out. This is important. The work would be carried out. It's intended to be carried out, not on solo missions. But as the church of the living God, it would be done together with one heart, one soul, that God would be glorified through the message. Acts 4, 33. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and great grace was upon them all. Where does this great power come from? I think what we've seen in these last couple chapters the Holy Spirit in them. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power, right? It's the power spoken of yet to come back in Acts 1.8. Acts 2.4, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Power has arrived. Acts 3.12, Peter says, why are you looking so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we made this man walk? And Peter is expressing here that the power to heal, not from me, it's from God. Acts 4, 7, the question comes, by what power or by what name have you done this? Have you healed this man? We see the power is questioned. In Acts 4, 31, when they prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. There's power accompanied by what? By prayer and the Spirit and as we see here in this verse, great grace. Well, the apostles, they gave witness, church, to the resurrection. What's interesting is that when we look backward to chapter 4, verse 10, Peter is standing in front of the Sanhedrin, giving testimony to the fact that Christ died, God raised him from the dead. And as you might recall, Peter... John, they were chastised verbally for preaching in Jesus, this resurrection from the dead. They were told essentially to stop it. And Acts 4.33 provides evidence. This is, see, this is one of the values right here, just one of many values of going through the text and preaching the text. Because you can piece these things together. Because you see, Acts 4.33 gives us evidence, provides us evidence for the boldness manifested in chapter 4, 19 and 20. Remember, Peter and John answered in 19 and 20. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. We talked about, they were confronted. There was this fork in the road moment for Peter and John. And it comes for each one of you as well. The time when you're going to have to decide whose voice am I going to listen to. Am I going to listen to what I know to be true? 
what God's already spoken to me in his word? Or am I going to listen to some other voice? And we see evidence in Acts 4.33 that Peter and John, the apostles as a whole, were listening to the voice of God. They were preaching and testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, it's interesting as we look at this and we see a principle here for giving witness to Christ that great grace is needed to give witness with great power. And thinking about your own witnessing efforts, is it carried out apart from His great power, the Holy Spirit in you? Is it possible that great power is absent today because there's little if any thought or need of his grace yes it is true you're saved by grace through faith but it is also true that you need his grace yet today and you need his grace when you show up at the office tomorrow morning you need his grace to handle conflict befitting a believer in Jesus you need his grace to instruct and train your children in the way they ought to go amen That's what we need. You need His grace for all things. How is it that great grace was upon them all? Was it by chance that this happened? I don't believe so. Were they not one in heart and soul? Verse 32. Were they not desiring to carry out the Lord's work together as a church? Acts 2. We've already seen this. Were they not purposing in their hearts to obey what the Lord had called them to? You see, the Lord granted great grace to these apostles to speak the words of Christ resurrected with boldness. Look at Acts 4, 34 and 35. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. And brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as anyone had need. This is not the first time where we have come across this idea. In fact, in verse 32, this connects and ties in very well with verse 32. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. Or if you flip backward to Acts chapter 2. 44 and 45, all who believed were together, had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, divided them among all as anyone had need. That's the key, as anyone had need. No one lacked. For none of the possessions, none of the houses, none of the lands were deemed their own. They were connected, see, the church was connected not only in Christ, but through that union, they also shared, they also participated. Koinonia, that has the idea there. They participated and shared in seeing that the parts of the church family were taken care of. No one lacked among them. How did that happen, though? I mean, someone had to pay for all that, didn't they? Someone had to pay for it. What generated the income needed to provide for these needs as they came up? Well, the text says all who were possessors of lands or houses, not everyone owned houses and lands, 
But those that did sold them. And so if the possessions they now had were truly not their own, being now a part of Christ's church, they were applying the principle right here, making sure needs were taken care of. And you know what? Here's an interesting thing. There's no sense of struggle in this text. Struggle of, oh, I got to get rid of something. You don't see anybody twisting anybody's arm. There seems to be a desire to genuinely help. A desire to genuinely serve and meet needs. And church, isn't this what we're called to? We see a principle of this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. As we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially. Remember how it ends? To those who are of the household of faith, especially. So being a part of the church then teaches us about unselfish living. Unselfish in our interests. Remember elsewhere in the scripture we're to consider the interests of others. Unselfish with money. We remember that Deuteronomy 8.18 says that it is he who gives us the ability to produce wealth. This is not something we've done on our own. We're unselfish with our time. To be a part of the body and continue to turn a deaf ear toward the needs in the body. When needs are brought to your attention, are you quick to act? Do you tend to let someone else serve to meet the need, even though it's within your power to help? Here's the thing. You sit here today, and you may not be able to help another brother or sister financially. I understand that. The Lord understands that. But have you considered how you might help another brother or sister or family in the body? Have you considered that perhaps a simple note of encouragement might just be the thing for a weary soul? Church, I believe that would be helpful as well. So, possessors of lands and homes sold them to meet needs in the body. After they sold their possessions, they would take the proceeds of what was sold and put them at the disposal of the apostles. And in turn, the apostles would then distribute the proceeds as anyone had need. The pattern for funding the needs in the church family seems to be chronicled right here in the text. And it's no accident that it appears right here. No accident that the Spirit of God declares the pattern for such needs. Look at what comes next in Acts 4, 36 and 37. Having just shared the pattern for how the church funded the needs of those in the body, the text provides a specific example of one who did such a thing. And Joseph, or Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, we know him well as Barnabas, don't we? We're introduced to Barnabas right here in the text. This is the first picture we have of Barnabas. Isn't this a great introduction to this man Barnabas? This tells us a lot about Barnabas. Son of encouragement. And he is that. A Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. 
So this Levite from Cyprus is brought forward as an example of one who had land. Text says, having land, verse 37. Text tells us that he sold it and he brought the money from the sale to the apostles. Now, verse, verses 35 and 36, or 36 and 37, are going to stand out here as we continue reading to the first part of Acts 5. For what we have right here is the first part of contrasting examples. The pattern for funding needs in the church was carried out through those who owned lands or houses. They would sell them and take the profit from the sale to the apostles to meet the need. And Barnabas is a great example right here of this pattern at work. Praise the Lord for such men. Praise the Lord. This is a wonderful thing to be able to observe and see in the text. Look at Acts 5.1. But. Well, sometimes all you need is the but. Well, contrast is coming. Something different here is going to happen. Some different kind of example is going to be presented to us right now. The but serves as the contrasting launch pad, if you will. <laughs> a, a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Ananias and Sapphira. Well-known couple in the Bible. They're introduced right here in the text. Notice their introduction in the text. Notice how we come to find out about Ananias and Sapphira. You know, this text, just as a side note, this text does tell me some things about those first impressions. <laughs> the first time, if you will, when you meet somebody, when you see somebody, what's the first time when they meet you, when they see you, what, are they, what impression are they getting? Well, the Bible records for us this first encounter with Barnabas. Oh, what a wonderful, blessed introduction we have to this man Barnabas. Conversely, we're going to see a not-so-wonderful introduction to this married couple, Ananias and Sapphira. Notice the context into which they're introduced. They're going to be the example on the other end of the contrast. Do you see this? First, we had Barnabas. We see clearly what Barnabas did with the land he sold. In fact, there's only one verse needed to describe what he did. So in contrast to Barnabas' example, Ananias and Sapphira are put forward. A couple. Interesting that Sapphira's name is, is mentioned. You see the, the contrasting example included both husband and wife, as we'll come to see. Like Barnabas, notice the text says that they too sold a possession. Look at Acts 5 verse 2. And he kept back part of the proceeds. His wife also being aware of it. And brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Church, what's the difference between the example of Barnabas and the example given here of Ananias and Sapphira? I mean, both sold a possession. Both evidently saw some kind of need at some level needing to be met. 
Both put their money, they did put their money at the disposal of the apostles to distribute. These two parties do share some things in common. And yet the differences are quite glaring. I hope you see this. Barnabas, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. There's a a simplicity, isn't there, to what Barnabas did. I mean, he saw a need, perhaps, and with the resources given to him by the Lord, he meets the need, he does his part, his heart is moved to help, he willingly transfers the proceeds to take care of the needs and allows the apostles to distribute these funds accordingly. Not so with Ananias and Sapphira. They sold a possession and kept back a bit of the proceeds for themselves. But you might be sitting there thinking, well, what's the big deal? It was their property. What's wrong with that? If only that were the only thing. Look at Acts 5, 3 and 4. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Imagine the exchange when Ananias shows up at the apostles' headquarters. In fact, let's just go backward from that point. Let's follow Ananias along the road as he's about to deliver this certain part of his proceeds to the apostles. Let's go there for just a moment. What is he thinking as he's walking along the road? After having talked this thing through with his wife, Sapphira, Ananias now journeys to make their contribution. I wonder, is he having any second thoughts along the way? What Ananias doesn't know is this. The decision he makes here is about to cost him his very life. This decision is about to cost him his very life. In just a moment, his deeds are about to be exposed. Let's go backward even further. When Ananias sells his possession, before he calls his wife into the picture, what prompts Ananias to sell his possession? I'd like to point you to his motivation for selling this possession in the first place. You see, as a part of the church, as one of the multitude who believed... What would spark the thoughts to do such a thing? Turn your attention to James chapter 1, 14 through 16. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by what? His own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Does the Bible have anything to say, church, 
about our thoughts, what to do with them. Do you view your thoughts in the context? This may be part of the problem. Viewing our thoughts in the context of an ongoing battle being waged. 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. Paul says the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. But mighty in God for what? Pulling down strongholds. Casting down arguments. Bringing every thought into captivity. To what? To the obedience of Christ. As Ananias sold his personal possession, even as he considered and thought about doing such a thing, he is entertained with the thought of keeping some for himself and at the same time painting a picture for those in the church that he's giving it all. That's the problem. The issue is not simply he decided to keep a portion of the property. I mean, Peter, in fact, asks him two questions in verse 4. While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your control? In other words, Ananias, you had the ability to steward this possession to your liking. No one made you sell it, it was your possession. Even after you sold the possession, it was still your call on what to do with the proceeds, Ananias. And yet the text reveals the testimony of a man and his wife who blatantly lied to the Holy Spirit. See, here's what was going on. Wanting to fit the pattern for giving, as we talked about earlier in 32, 33, 34. They wanted to fit that pattern for giving in the church and yet also wanted to add to their own personal treasury in the process. They wanted to follow the pattern exhibited by Barnabas and others, no doubt, while confirming in their own hearts, you know what, it's okay if we keep back a portion. No one is going to ever know. Have you ever had those thoughts? Have you ever thought to yourself, you know what, no one will ever find out. No one's, no one's going to know about it. it. It'll be okay. There's a problem with that kind of thinking. You see, the text today brings to the table some troubling news for the church. As good as things seem to be right now in this early church that we've been reading about in Acts, it's right here where we're introduced to a sobering truth. Here it is. Liars can operate within the midst of Christ's church. Now, most of you here this morning wouldn't characterize yourself as a liar. But I don't get the idea that Ananias and Sapphira viewed themselves as liars either. See, someone who lies can walk around in their lie for quite some time, unnoticed, undetected. Perhaps no one catches them in their sin. But let me ask you something. 
Is lying deemed better or worse as long as you can keep it hidden from others? It's not a matter of whether someone simply finds out, is it? Is that the criteria? Are you good as long as no one finds out? Where's the Lord at in this thought process, church? Where's the word of God brought to bear in this thought process? This is nothing but worldly wisdom at work. That's what it is. James chapter 3. Listen to these words. You can turn if you'd like to or you can listen. James chapter 3, 13 through 17. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and what? Self-seeking in your heart. Do not boast and lie against the truth. The wisdom, this kind of wisdom, does not descend from above, but listen to the descriptors of this kind of wisdom. It's earthly, sensual, demonic. You can circle that because we're going to come back to that in just a moment. This kind of wisdom is characterized as demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, and listen to the last one, without hypocrisy. Jerry Bridges in his book, Respectable Sins, love the title, he says this about lying. He says, we usually think of it as making a false statement. However, we are apt to lie by exaggeration, right? By a failure to tell the whole truth, or by indulging in what we call a little white lie. A lie we think is of no consequence. Whatever form it takes, a lie expresses an intent to deceive. An intent to deceive. You ever tried to deceive someone? Of course you would never talk to someone else about it. But you know. At the core of trying to deceive someone is selfishness. You want something, you covet something, you desire to get your way about something, and yet that something that you want, you know deep down it's not, it's not right. You know it's not right because you're hiding it. You know, we got a slogan in our home that we've said from time to time. If you have to hide it, it's probably not right. If you have to hide it, it's probably not honoring to the Lord. Amen? There's the example of the little girl who happened to lock herself into the bathroom. She said she was going to the bathroom, but she took an inordinate amount of time. Finally, the door opens, the little girl comes out. Mom goes in, finds candy wrappers. Bunches of candy wrappers in the trash can. 
evidence seems to be pointing towards something more happened in the bathroom on this particular day with this little girl. And you know, we might laugh at the story, but the core of it is not a laughing matter. Lying. Speaking to someone with an intent to deceive. The Lord has something to say about that in his word. I'm reminded of Proverbs 6. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. You know, we, we talk a lot in the word about what God desires for us to do, how God desires for us to walk. You know, God also desires to, to let us know about things he hates. And as we read this list, several of these things he hates have to do with lying and being deceitful. Listen, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. A lying tongue, a heart that devises wickedness, one who sows discord among brethren. These things, church, are not befitting a believer in Jesus. They ought not be done to the Lord. They are an abomination. Therefore, they ought to be an abomination to each one of us in Christ. We need to understand that deceit is characteristic of Satan. We go as far back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, and we read this verse. Now the serpent was more cunning. Crafty, deceptive than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. We see even in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Jesus speaks of the lying nature of Satan. John 8, 44, Jesus says, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. You see, when he speaks a lie, Jesus says... He speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. Look back, Acts 5, verse 3. Ananias, why has Satan so filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? I want you to imagine that encounter. Ananias, Ananias walks to deliver his certain part of the proceeds, and he immediately gets confronted with Peter's words. This is interesting. The first things recorded in the text, notice what the first words are not. Ananias, this is great. You know, thanks for serving the family of God with your contribution. Oh, oh, oh and by the way, tell, tell Sapphira we said thank you as well. No, we don't read those words, do we? The first thing recorded It's quite the opposite. Ananias, why? Why? Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Now, there are a few things right here that I believe are instructive for us. First of all, that lie that sounded so good a while back doesn't seem such a good idea right now. Does it? Side note. Some of you are living in a lie right now. Can I just put this forward and say, stop it. Stop masquerading. Better to stop now. Come clean. Repent of your sin. 
than for that day of judgment to come. And oh, church, it's coming. It is coming. Ananias had no idea, church. He had no idea that upon delivery of his certain part to the apostles, he was going to breathe his last breath. You have no idea either when your last breath is going to come. Satan, we see, is the father of the very lies that come out of your mouth. That's another thing we see here. Satan is the father of the very lies that come out of your mouth. But, but notice the connection here. Those lies that come out of your mouth come from a heart that's opened the door to Satan. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? The word filled there, same word that's used when we're speaking of filled with the Holy Spirit. Why has Satan filled your heart? We know Jesus' words connect heart and mouth, don't they? What we speak comes out of what? Heart. Notice that Ananias has not primarily lied to Peter. Peter didn't say, why have you lied to me? That's instructive, I believe. You see, as believers, if, if someone has lied, let's not get upset the fact that they've lied to you. No! Let's, let's follow what the word says here. Peter doesn't even bring that out. Because it's much deeper than just lying to man, isn't it? You've lied to the Lord. You've lied to God. You've lied to the Holy Spirit. By the way, he, he, he puts Holy Spirit and God on the same plane, doesn't he? <laughs> In verse 3 and 4, the Holy Spirit is God. I believe this is a testimony. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit also is referred to as in the text, in the Gospels, John 14, 17, John 16, 13. He's referred to as the Spirit of truth. You see, a believer indwelt with the Holy Spirit is characteristic of one who speaks truth, not falsehood. He speaks the things of Christ, not the things that tickle his ears and sound pleasant and sound desirable, things that he wants to hear. But it's the truth of the Word, it's the truth of Christ. The sin of the tongue manifests itself in the heart of man. Mark chapter 7, Jesus is speaking. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit. There it is. Lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. Many of those things characterize what Ananias is doing. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Acts chapter 5 verse 4 says, Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to, to men, but to God. So again right here, Peter is speaking to Ananias' heart. Let's keep something in mind right here in the text. Ananias is a part of the church family. This is not a, a text scolding one standing on the outside. <laughs> the text would lead us to believe that Ananias and Sapphira had the Spirit of Christ in them, and yet they both operate with worldly wisdom. Sin's mark, church, is left right here in Acts 5. Sin in the church. 
lying in the church. Deception in the church. The adversary is not always on the outside, is he? Satan's work is deception, masquerading. Parts of the body who set out with intent to deceive. We need to understand that the Spirit of Christ, Galatians 5, operates contrary to the flesh. See, sin is welcomed in the flesh, foreign to the Spirit. Foreign in the sense described in the Bible. Turn, if you will, to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. Begin in verse 9, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested, that's Jesus, to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Praise the Lord for that. Whoever abides in him, that's Christ, does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he's been born of God. We've become accustomed to sin, church. We've become okay with it, it seems. Because what I'm reading here in the Word, whoever abides in Christ does not sin, does not take sin lightly. It's not okay to do what we're reading about in Acts chapter 4 and 5. It's not okay to operate from the perspective that I'll do it, no one's going to find out about it. Let no one deceive you. Turn to Colossians. There's a word here as well in Colossians about this same idea. Starting in verse 6, chapter 2. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware! Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Empty deceit, according to the tradition of men. Seems to be a lot of that today. Even in church circles, I mean. According to the basic principles of the world... And not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And you, this is so important, verse 10. And you are complete in him. Don't let anyone sell you a bill of goods. You are complete in Christ Jesus. 
Church, he is the truth, right? John 14, 6. The church of which you are part serves as the pillar and ground of the truth. Timothy 3, 14, 15. Everyone on the side of truth hears his voice, John 18, 37. His word is deemed truth, John 17, 17. Right? A truth that sets apart. A truth that sanctifies all believers in Jesus. Not a certain few believers. All believers. All who desire to follow after Jesus. This truth is what sets us apart. Look at Acts 5.5. 5. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. No chance for rebuttal. Did you notice that? Some of us like to be able to throw out our side of the story. He didn't get his side of the story. He didn't get it out. No chance to explain. No chance to rationalize. The text says he fell down, breathed his last. The ramifications of what happened with Ananias is given in the next sentence. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. I would imagine so. Can you imagine how this news would have spread in Jerusalem? If the healing of the lame man was news across the land, I can only imagine what kind of cooler talk was going on concerning the death of Ananias. Look at Acts 5, 6. The young men. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. I don't have any idea who these young men are. Have no idea. It's interesting that they're inserted here in the text. I believed the fact that they were they were somewhere in the proximity, it seems. They arose. It's almost as like he brought them with him. They were tasked with the job of picking up Ananias' body and giving him a proper burial. I tend to believe these young men were changed as a result of their task assigned to them. Can you imagine digging someone's grave? Burying a dead man's body. Sobering to carry out the task. Great, great fear came upon those who heard the news of what had just happened. This guy was a part of the church family. Did you hear how it happened? Yeah, someone says. Yeah, I heard. Peter prophesied that he'd lied to the Holy Spirit. And before Ananias could get a word out, he just fell down. He breathed his last. He's dead. Guess it means something to be a part of that church. I guess it means something not to lie. Those church people take this very seriously. Enter the wife. Acts 5, verse 7. Some time has elapsed, uh, three hours. It was about three hours later when his wife came in not knowing what had happened. That, that part of the verse really boggles my mind. I have no idea what Sapphira had been doing for the last three hours. She must have been secluded somewhere. Hard to believe she hadn't heard the word by this point of what had happened. But perhaps, perhaps the Lord was intentional about reserving the news until she arrived home. Whatever the reason, 
Sapphira comes home. Acts 5.8 begins this way. And Peter answered her. Peter answered her. Leads me to believe she asks a question. Got any idea what question she might ask as she come walking through the door? How about, do you know where my husband is? How about, what brings you here, Peter? Here's the answer. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. No hello, no pleasantries exchanged, no explanation for why he happens to be in her house. He greets Sapphira with a question of his own. And she responds, according to the text, with confirming, yes, that was the amount. And look at where Peter goes with the conversation. Acts 5, 9. And Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Stop, stop right there for just a moment. Husband and wife team, remember? Husband and wife team. Both have the spirit of Christ in them, we're led to believe. And yet both of them are okay with holding back part of the proceeds, acting like nothing's wrong, assuming no one will ever know. Husbands, Do not call your wife on board with something that is not of the Lord. Something that is a lie. Do not ask her to be an accomplice to your sin. Do not lead her astray with deceptive words. Listen to the voice of the Lord Lead by the words of Christ and not the basic principles of the world. Colossians 2.8. Acts 5.9. Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out. I can't imagine the impact of such words on her ears. News of her husband's whereabouts coupled with pending judgment for her own actions. Did you hear that? Her own actions. Well, she didn't even do anything. I mean, she was just following her husband's lead. Right. You're right. And following her husband's foolish, worldly, selfish leadership. Look what happened. Acts 5.10. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men, that's the group of young men, they came in and found her dead and carrying her out buried her by her husband. Once again, the Holy Spirit shows us the impact of sin. Look at chapter 5, verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church. Upon all the church. I believe this is the first time used here. Ecclesia, first time. Isn't it interesting? The first time we hear about the church in the midst of this. At a time when church life seemed to be moving forward, 
People were together. People were united in purpose of one heart, one soul. Needs were being met. No one lacked a thing. The apostles' boldness in the midst of the Sanhedrin, the encouragement that brought the whole body of Christ. The Lord was adding to the church daily. And now this happens. You see, sin manifests itself within the body. Sin marks the body right here. And I was thinking about the early church, and I was thinking about a stoplight. I don't know why, and the Lord just kind of brought that to my attention. But I was thinking about the early church. I was thinking about this stoplight. And it seems like the church had been green. There's been a green light up to this point in the text. They were going forward. They were going full speed ahead as the Lord enabled them. There, there seemed to be a caution back there in Acts chapter 4. Right when they got caught and they were put in prison for a time, there was a little bit of uncertainty as to what was going to happen. Peter and John. But we see that that quickly gets taken off. It goes back to green. The Lord does his work, allows them to, to be freed. And they come together and, and still moving forward. And great grace was upon them all. And then Acts 5 chronicles a red light in the midst of the church. The same Lord who added to the church subtracted from his church that day. Literally subtracted. Great fear came upon all the church. Does sin in the camp cause you to fear? Or has sin become so acceptable that it no longer causes fear? I believe the text would have us to see that Christ's church is the pillar and ground of the truth. I believe the text would have us see sin in a different light. Does it bother you that another brother or sister is caught in sin? Does it bother you that you might be one of the brothers and sisters caught in sin? Galatians 6 is instructive for us there, is it not? Like Ananias and Sapphira, perhaps you're wanting to be a part of the church and continue your deception. You like the idea of being a part of this church family, and yet you're holding on to a lie. You're living a lie, perhaps. To this point, you've deceived man quite well. You evidenced two funerals in the text today. Did you know that? Funerals have a way of realigning and readjusting. They have a way of sobering you to the reality that this life is temporary. Funerals are not intended to state the obvious that so-and-so has died. Funerals, gospel-saturated funerals, have the power to point you to life everlasting, life beyond the grave. Someone has died, but praise the Lord, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? You see, Christ died. He was buried, but God raised him from the dead three days later, having abolished the pains of death because it was not possible that Christ should be held by death. That's what the Word says. Acts 5.10 says that Sapphira was buried by her husband. If an epitaph had been erected over their graves. 
what might it say? I took a shot at it. You can come up with your own. Here lies two church folk who lied to the Lord. Or may these lives in Christ serve as examples of the deceitfulness of sin. Or godly wisdom or worldly wisdom. Here lies the result of the latter. As the curtain draws on the funeral services of Ananias and Sapphira, consider, church, what your own epitaph might say. What would it say today if the Lord called you home? What would it say today? What would you desire for it to say? I also took a shot at that one. The sin that so easily entangled him here on earth is now gone, having been paid for by his Lord Jesus Christ. Here lies a follower of the truth, Jesus Christ, who claimed nothing as his own, but relied fully and assuredly on the blood of Christ, who alone has become his righteousness. This life is not done contrary to the human eye, but has only just begun. In Christ, this death is not the end, but merely an entryway into the glorious presence of the Lord. May the weight of the text land on your heart and soul today. Let's pray. Father, your word is very clear. About the wonderful privilege there is in being a part of your church. Coupled with the responsibilities involved in being a part of your church. Today, Lord, we've been presented with very sobering truth. In the text, we're confronted with death. We're confronted with sin. All of these in the context of the church. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us a heart of wisdom. Your godly wisdom, Lord, is what we need. May we operate in that godly wisdom and not in worldly wisdom. May we not think for one moment that any decision goes unnoticed by you. You know all things. You see all things. Nothing gets by you. Father, I pray that we would not operate from the perspective of no man will know. I pray instead we would operate from the perspective of truth. What is true? What is truth? And in knowing what your truth says, Father, we would desire to walk in that way. That we wouldn't ask the question, well, how far can I go here? That it won't be wrong. No, Lord, let's, I pray, 
that you would help us to see. Not even to go there, but we would be able just to see with clarity the importance of walking in the truth that you've given to us. Not devising schemes, not devising plans, thinking of the world. Lord, you've given to us this word. May we walk in it in obedience and may we delight in walking in it. Father, I pray that as a church we would collectively hear your word this morning. That we would not deceive ourselves by simply hearing. But Lord, we would take the word that's been spoken. That we would now be doers of this word that's been spoken. That we would be obedient to carry out the very truth that you've given to us in your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the salvation you've provided for us through Jesus. We praise you. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.